Well, this week we're continuing the series we're just calling We Are. We've moved from the series and we believe the core things uh, that the church has believed about God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for 2,000 years now. And so we move from what we believe to, to who we are, specifically who we are as a church, why our life, faithful to Jesus Christ, is so important. And so this morning, we're going to talk about why the world needs the church. We talked last week about why we need it. This morning, we're going to talk about why the world needs the church. Some of you may recall that a recent candidate for president was giving a lecture. And in the context of talking about abortion, about how important it was to be pro-choice, to be pro-abortion, that candidate said this, quote, Deep-seated cultural codes, religious beliefs, and social structures have to be changed. The assertion was is that we've moved beyond what the church and Christians and religious people have traditionally taught. And in order for them to catch up to the modern world and be a useful part of our political organization, they just need to change. If we take a very close look at the cultural around us, I think it's easy to find one of two perspectives on the usefulness or the work of the church. And one of those perspectives is represented inside of that speech. And the perspective is this, that the the church is useful, but it's useful if it updates its beliefs and joins us with our political ideology, whatever that political ideology may be. It's useful if it changes. So the church needs to change some things in its deepest held beliefs in order to be useful for us. Another point of view that is quite common about the church and the culture around us is this. It's just quite simply that the church is outdated and it just needs to go. It's moral beliefs and religious teachings. They hold us back. The church through the centuries has been a net negative on human existence. Christopher Hitchens wrote the book, God is not great, religion poisons everything. So the other point of view essentially is, well, the church just simply needs to go away. Now, part of what's so fascinating to me as a pastor, watching those kinds of trends and pressures and the kinds of reactions that the church has sometimes is that through the years and even through the centuries in a lot of ways, some churches have actually agreed with those ideas to one form or another. And over time, one of two things tends to happen to churches who who agree without those points of view. One of the first things that happens is that they disappear. People just quit attending. They find no use in being a part of the church, and so those churches just go away. Or the other thing that tends to happen to them, being either a local body of believers like this or a denomination as a whole, they become indistinguishable from the culture that has appropriated them. What happens inside the church, so to speak, becomes almost indistinguishable from what happens outside the church. So when the world thinks about what they need from the church, the world tends to think that what they need is the church to change. When we this morning say that the world needs the church, what we mean is this. The world needs the church to faithfully bear witness to the kingdom of God, whether it knows it or likes it or not. The world just needs the church to faithfully bear witness to the kingdom of God. And I firmly believe that our culture is better when we do 
And our culture is worse off when we don't. So here's some of the things that we're going to see and that we're going to talk about this morning using a part of Jeremiah 29 as our launching pad. And the first is this, that the church of Jesus Christ brings health to the dysfunctions of the world around us. The ways that the world is going wrong around us, the, the church brings health to those things. And we are going to talk specifically about secular humanism this morning, how the church actually brings health to the ways in which that goes wrong. The church is an institution of meaning and of virtue in our world, and it's necessary for the health and the well-being of the human condition. And this is what I believe to be true about the church of Jesus Christ, and that's a big deal, isn't it? So the church brings health to the dysfunctions of the world around us. And secondly, we're going to talk about this. We offer truth, not relevance. We offer truth, not relevance. We are often, as the church, especially the the evangelical church in America, and I feel these pressures as well, so this isn't demeaning, this is just reality, we're often obsessed with matters of relevance. But we have to be really careful with those things to make sure that what we're offering first and foremost is the truth of Jesus Christ. This is what we have to offer the world around us. And then thirdly, I think it's going to be important that we finish with the thought that we offer compassion and we offer witness or evangelism. These kinds of activities make a difference. They're important to the life of a church. These kinds of activities bring light into darkness, both now and for eternity. All right, so let's begin reading. In Jeremiah chapter 29, I'm going to start reading in verse 4. I'm going to read a few verses, and then we'll jump ahead and read a few more. So Jeremiah chapter 29, beginning in verse 4, God writes a letter to his people and he says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And then I want to skip to verse 11. If you know one verse out of the book of Jeremiah, this is the verse that you know, but we have to understand how it works. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you and you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. The context of this chapter is important. Jeremiah chapter 29 is a letter. It's a letter that God writes to His people through the prophet Jeremiah. And here's what's been going on. The people of God have been rebelling against God for a very long time, and He's been warning them. 
If you continue to rebel against me, this, this great, big, powerful empire to your east, the Babylonians, they're going to show up and they're going to overwhelm you and they're going to destroy the city of Jerusalem and they're going to start carrying you off into exile, essentially into slavery, away from Jerusalem and Judea and then into Babylon and into the middle of their empire. So God sends his prophets to speak this message, repent or be carried off into exile. So that's the story of Jeremiah. That's his job. So he preaches this message. Jeremiah warns them of what's coming. The people of God, as tends to be typical of them in the Old Testament, the people of God ignore the warning that Jeremiah gives them. And now God has brought the Babylonians and they are exiles in Babylon. That's the very first verse that we read. God says, I'm writing this letter to my people whom I have taken from their place in Jerusalem and I've put them as exiles in the city of Babylon. So when God writes this letter, the people of God are surrounded by a culture that has nothing to do with God. They're surrounded by a culture that is in fact antithetical to the ways of God in all kinds of ways. Now that's different for them. They've had their own nation with its own borders and with its own capital and with its own temple and with its own set of priests and sacrificial system. Their entire culture was supposed to be wrapped around the worship of God, but now it's different. The people of God aren't there. They're dropped in the middle of a culture that has nothing to do with God. And what Jeremiah tells them, part of what he says here in chapter 29 is that you're going to be in Babylon for a while. It's going to be more than one generation, and you've got some work to do. If you read the rest of this chapter, which I think you probably should, you're going to learn that the false prophets have been telling the people of God, don't worry, this is going to be over soon, and you're going to be home. The false prophets are lying. So God says through Jeremiah, here's what I want you to do. So what's the solution? What is God's plan? What is God's desire when his people live in a culture that has nothing to do with him? What does he want them to do when they live surrounded by a way of life that is antithetical to the ways of God? So the solution was this. Now notice notice this about what what we read. He said, I want you to work. I want you to plant fields. I want you to plant vineyards. I want you to raise flocks. I want you to work hard. And I want you to work well. I want you to work well among the Babylonians. I want you to build families. I want you to marry off your kids. I want you to have grandkids. I want you to multiply in the land and not decrease. I want you to work well. I want you to expand the family of God. I need you to be faithful to me because when you're there, you're going to begin to pray to me again. You're going to call out to me and we're going to be back in conversation. I want you to be faithful to me while you are there. He says a couple of fascinating things as well. He says, I want you to pray to me for the welfare of the city in which you live. And I want you to work so well that they benefit from how you live and from how you work. That's the context of the verse in Jeremiah that we know. Verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. In the context of working and living 
and multiplying and worshiping and praying in the middle of a culture that has nothing to do with God. Now, from one point of view, the Babylonians, maybe from the primary point of view, if you just want to read it through the eyes of the Judeans who have been taken into exile, if you want to read it through the eyes of the scope of history and of the aggressor of the Babylonian Empire, from at least one point of view, the Babylonians are the enemies. They're the bad guys. They're the ones who have burned Jerusalem to the ground. They're the ones who've destroyed our armies and our families and carried off into exile. The Babylonians are the bad guys. But what God tells his people in that context is to live a lifestyle that will not only benefit them and their kids and their grandkids, but will bring benefit to the Babylonians as well the bad guys. Is it possible that when God writes this letter to his people who are living in exile, that he's trying to change their perspective about how they live, about how they live and work and and build their families for the sake of not just themselves, but for the sake of the Babylonians, for the sake of the bad guys, so to speak. So instead of working for their demise and trying to bring the Babylonian empire down from within, they're supposed to work for and pray for their welfare. The people of God are intended to outlive and pray for the Babylonians. When we talk about this kind of way of living under God, it's not just Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, the Judeans and the Babylonians here for a period of time. This notion of living in exile becomes so important to the early church that later on when the apostle Peter writes his letters, 1 and 2 Peter, most likely to Christians who are living in the city of Rome, he calls them exiles. Because part of what Peter is doing is he's reminding them of this kind of advice. This is how God wants you to live now that you, church, are living in exile. The church of Jesus Christ never has have and is not intended to have its own nation with its own national borders, with its own army, with its own, uh, you, you know, capital city and so on and so forth. It's intended to live as exiles in every culture of the world. The world needs the church, the faithful church. So it's not just the Old Testament story in Jeremiah, but it's important to Peter in the New Testament church in part, of, in part because of some of the things that Jesus told us about our lives. Here's part of what Jesus has to say about this kind of thing. It comes from the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this, speaking to his disciples. You are the salt of the earth. And sort of imagine God scattering salt everywhere. You're the salt of the earth. But... If you become appropriated by the world around you, if you become indistinguishable from the world around you, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It becomes useless. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Hang on to that thought. 
so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus intends his disciples to live in this world so that they are salt, right? He intends us to live in this world so that we are light, not hidden, not hold up, but placed on a stand for all to see so that our light can be seen, so that who can be glorified, so that God can be glorified. So as Christians in our culture today, we can either have some form of, well, they deserve everything that's coming to them kind of point of view and just not do the work of becoming salt and light. Well, they're wicked people to begin with, and you can't believe what they just said, and you can't believe what they're arguing for in court, and you can't believe the kind of politics that they do. And so they they deserve everything that's coming to them. We could have that kind of perspective. Or we could listen to what God has to say to His people in Jeremiah 29. We could listen to the story of what it means to live as exiles in a world that desperately needs the church, which means we can live our lives as if the impact of a faithful church can really make a difference in the world around us. That's God's intention for the lives of His people. So God's people here in Jeremiah chapter 29, they were expected to bring God's life into their culture. So where things were going wrong or where things were amiss, where things were antithetical to the way of God in their world, They live God's way. So they bring the health of God's life into their culture, offering life where their world is broken. And so is the story with Peter as he writes to the Christians in Rome. You guys live so as to bring life into your broken culture. And the story is true of us as well. The intention is true for us as well that the faithful church today can live in such a way as to bring life and light into the ways in which our culture is broken and dysfunctional around us. And here's how I want to talk about the failures of what I'm going to call modern secularism, and we'll talk about this. So the faithful church can bring health to the failures of what is probably the dominant worldview outside of the church of Jesus Christ, and that is modern secularism. For a few centuries now, the Western world that has, has had this kind of philosophical and worldview love affair with the promises of secularism in all of its forms, this promise to get disconnected from the church, this promise to un, um, unhinge ourselves from God Himself and live our own lives under our own reason and capacity and our own freedom, and it offers all of this fulfillment and joy and happiness. And the Western world, in a lot of ways, has been enamored with those kinds of promises. So how does modern secularism get talked about? How does it work its way out in our world today? Well, one primary way is is just part of what we might call philosophical secularism, and that is that the, the physical world is all that there is. There is no God to answer to. There is uh, what the church talks about when it speaks of salvation and soul and spirit and God and so forth is meaningless talk because none of that actually exists. So we construct our own, um, our own rationality. We construct our own purpose and meaning. The, the universe was not created by God. It was created by natural forces. And on and on the story goes, and we just don't need the authority of God, Scripture, or of the church. Another way in which 
modern secularism plays itself out in the world around us, and this is probably a way in which we hear it often, and that is that science answers all of the questions that are important to us. Science will, will eventually, if it has not already, it will find some evidence-based way to take care of every corner of human existence. It won't explain just how chemistry and physics works. It will explain how the human person works and, and what's important and meaningful to us as well. We can now live in their terms, as they may put it. We can now live these evidence-based lives instead of faith-based lives, and that's a That's a curse word for them. (laughs) We can now live evidence-based lives, and so we have no use for this soul talk or of this God talk. There's a famous encounter in history between a French scientist and the French king almost 300 years ago or so, and the French king was was, um, questioning the scientist about what the scientist was doing, and the king said, well, what about God? And the scientist sort of famously said, we have no need of that hypothesis. See, that's the point of view, right? We don't need that. We can answer everything through just science alone. In the end, secularism is the attempt to live as if there is no God. Not just ways of thinking. It's not just ways of educating. It's ways of living, to live as if there is no God. Well, part of what's interesting about this is that the experiment is falling apart. And it's falling apart in devastating and powerful ways. And so you and I as Christians who now live in exile, we're not in exile in Babylon. We're not in exile in the city of Rome 2,000 years ago. We're living as exiles in this culture, in this city, in this state, in this nation. So we should be aware of, of how these kinds of things are falling apart so that we as the church can bring life into these things. So guys, so for all of the promises of freedom and meaning that come with um, modern secularism, we just aren't finding any of that. We just aren't finding the promised meaning and purpose and happiness. Now, I keep talking about secularism, and some of you are thinking, well, most of the people I know who reject God will say something like this, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I really don't want to have anything to do with church or or with Jesus, but I'm going to find some sort of inner spiritual meeting. Well, I believe, okay, so this is Pastor Phil speaking. I believe that point of view, I'm spiritual but not religious, is prominent in our culture because of the failures of secularism. Guys, the human heart is a meaning-hunting organ. It will always look for meaning, and it will only find meaning in the God who created it. It will only find the salvation it searches for in the God who created in spiritual realities. So if a human being who sees or just knows on some visceral level that the secularism story just doesn't do it and they still don't want to find or accept God in Jesus Christ, they find this weird middle that makes no sense. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. So all of this, I think, has to do with the failures of modern secularism. Well, how is this failing? I wanted to lay this out before you because as I pay attention to this, there are a lot of ways, I think, to talk about the failures of secularism, but there are a few ways that are actually kind of fascinating that you may or may not have seen or heard, but they just keep rising to the surface in our particular culture. And here's a couple of ways to talk about it. Rates of loneliness are skyrocketing. 
So social researchers who ask people questions like, do you feel, um, you feel like you're surrounded by friends? Do you feel lonely or not? They're discovering that in the last couple of decades, the rates of people who are self-identifying as either lonely or dangerously lonely, I might actually be thinking about killing myself lonely, those rates are actually on the rise. You flip that story around and the number of people who self-report, I have a lot of really good lifelong friends is on the decrease. Do you have three or four people in your lives that you, can, that you can trust in and that you would consider a friend? The number of people who answer yes to that kind of question is going down. The number of people who say, I have zero friends, is on the rise. Now, this is a fascinating irony inside of our culture. We are more digitally connected to digital friends than we have ever been. We are more personally disconnected than we have ever been. Some of you may have seen the news last year and a half or so. The United Kingdom has established a brand new ministry-level position. This is what we would call, you know, a cabinet-level position in the federal government. And the position is called, it's actually called the Minister for Loneliness. It is such a problem in their culture that they're spending money on the, the national level to hire someone to address the problems of loneliness. When I was a kid, it was the minister for silly walks, but that's a whole other thing. That was funny. The minister for loneliness is not. <clears throat> we talk sometimes about what we'll call the opioid epidemic, deaths that are related to the use or misuse of opioids are on the rise in dramatic fashions. The last set of data that I found from the Centers for Disease Control said that in the United States alone, 116 people die a day from the misuse of opioids. You do the math, and that's over 42,000 people in America a year. In the Vietnam War, we lost a little over 53,000 people. So every year in America alone, just due to opioids, we're losing almost the equivalent of the entire Vietnam War. Does it sound like this experiment is working for us. The CDC also reports, and this report just came out late last year, if I remember correctly, the suicide rates in the United States has hit a 50-year high. And in fact, it has gone so high, it's affected the general mortality rates in the United States. So the average age of death for men and women in the United States has gone down because of the number of suicides that have gone up so dramatically. The world needs the church. The church finds itself in a place where God speaks to us today. I need you to work really well. I need you to build your families well. I need you to pray to me for the world around you. I need you to seek their welfare. The world needs the church. It doesn't need the church to change. It needs the church to be faithful. So guys, into a culture that just gets a lot of things wrong, into a culture that is just antithetical to the life that God offers to us in a lot of ways, the church of Jesus Christ can just become a powerful witness. Guys, the church is a necessary institution in a community. It's not the appendix institution in a community. It's not a throwaway. It's not just like some other voluntary organization inside of the city. It is a unique 
and necessary institution inside of a community. The church is the group, the institution, the organization, whatever word you want to use for it. It is the organization in our cities that teaches that meaning and purpose and joy and salvation is found in the God who created us and loves us. The church is the group that carries that message with us everywhere that we go. So the church unashamedly points people to Jesus Christ. It's an institution inside of our families and our friend circles and our community that just sticks out. And it sticks out for the good of God and for the glory of God. Here's part of how the Apostle Peter says it to those Christians living in Rome. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. You need to live in such a way, right? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. And here he quotes Jesus and glorify God on the day of visitation. Live in such a way. It's different so that they can see you and talk about how awesome you are. So they can talk about how great your God is. Right? So the church learns how to bring health into the dysfunctions of the world around it. So guys, a big part of that is that we offer truth, not relevance. A passage of Scripture that I love about the church, and it goes by so quickly, it's just easy to miss, comes from 1 Timothy. As Paul writes to this pastor Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Paul says this, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. I love that. The church is the pillar and the buttress of truth. We hold it up. We hold it up for all to see. Now, when it comes to design and engineering, a pillar and a buttress, yes, it looks like they hold things up, but what they're doing is they're transferring the load of everything they're holding to the foundation. It's the foundation that does the work. We are based on Jesus Christ, but the church is the pillar and the buttress of truth. So when the church talks about relevance to the world around us, we need to be really careful with that word and with that concept because if it goes too far, it can just turn into pandering to a culture instead of calling people out of destructive ways of life into genuine and beautiful relationship with Jesus Christ. That's how every one of us became a follower of Jesus Christ. We were called out of one way of life into his way of life. So the church offers Jesus. What we have to give this world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the church that does that, the people who do that will just stick out as something unique and worthwhile, right? I quoted him last week. Uh, Mark Sayers is a very thoughtful pastor and author. He wrote a marvelous little book called The Disappearing Church, and here's part of what he says. The response to a culture built on superficiality, which reduces the world to a shallow secularity, is depth. (laughs) This is the response 
to a world that reduces human beings to a shallowness, a shallow secularity, a shallow happiness and personal fulfillment, the response to that is not to give them more of the same but on Sunday mornings at 10.30. The response to that is depth. We offer truth. We offer Jesus. We offer the gospel. The most common image, I think, in Scripture for talking about false ways of life in both the Old Testament and the New Testament is to talk about false idols. False idols in the Old Testament and in many ways in the New Testament as well, they were actually false deities, these other religions, these pagan gods and goddesses and so forth. But it also includes false ideologies in, way, in terms of false ways of seeing things, false philosophies, false worldviews, false you know, ideas and so on and so forth. False idols guide us in the wrong directions. It's such an important concept that uh, the, the, the disciple John, when he writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, 1st John ends in the most curious of all fashions. He writes this book of love, and he finishes. The last thing he says is, and you can look it up, and this is the new Phil Revised Standard Version of how he finishes his book, but what he says is this, please, children, don't follow false idols, period, end of book. Falsehood, what is Falsehood. How does it work? Well, it's really quite straightforward. Falsehood just gets reality wrong. That's false. That means it's out of touch, out of sync with reality. So false idols, false religions, false ideas, false philosophies get reality wrong. And false idols, as far as Scripture is concerned, were more than just things that people worshipped. It, it was more than just an idol that was on the shelf or a bad idea that someone had. They were the kinds of lives that people led. You see, false idols lead to false lives. Bad ideas lead us, lead us down those same kinds of paths. So false idols turn into false ways of life. So these false ways of life, they miss reality. And here are a couple of the important things that they do. They get the human condition wrong. They talk about how human beings work in false and wrong ways. So what that means is, is they get solutions to the human condition wrong. So here's part of what I mean by that. When we talk about the sort of the modern secular worldview, it has a, a kind of religious structure to it. What is the human condition? How can we talk about sin? How can we talk about salvation from sin in our human condition? So in the modern secular worldview, what's going on around us, what's sort of sometimes even rolling inside of our own souls is something like this. The belief that our condition is human beings are basically good. We're perfectible. Few things might be wrong about us around the edges, but we're basically good. So through some form of education and human program and progress, we can actually perfect the human condition. Say so that's the human condition. Well, what is sin? Sin is anything that stops me from my unlimited personal freedom. Sin is anything that stops me from finding my unlimited personal freedom. This is why our culture holds to the word tolerance with such rigid intolerance, right? Because sin is anything that tells me, no, you can't do that. So salvation is self-fulfillment, finding personal Happiness. This is where we find salvation in the modern secular worldview. 
But as we see in so many ways, that narrative just falls apart over time. It gets people wrong. It gets our loves wrong. It is a false idol. It gets our salvation wrong. But we're reminded of Paul's words to Timothy when he says, but the church is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. So the church is a different story that it tells the world around us. What is our condition? Our condition is that human beings have fallen into sin. We're basically broken. We're not basically perfect. We're basically broken in need of something else. Sin is anything that breaks the will of God. So if my pursuit of personal happiness is contrary to the will of God in my life, who is sinning, right? So the church says sin is anything that breaks the will of God. And then salvation is putting our trust in Jesus Christ and believing in Him. So we hold to this message, not so that we can prove the culture wrong around us, but so that we can live out what God told the exiles in Babylon, so that we can seek the welfare of the people around us, so that we can bear witness to Jesus Christ, our hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes when we think about what it means for us to sort of bear truth into this world around us, uh, to sort of bring life into ways in which the world is sort of dysfunctional around us, it is sometimes easy to imagine, you know, we go out there with this baseball bet and we're ready to hit anybody over the head who's wrong, right? You're wrong, this is truth, whack, here you go, right? But again, that's not the story. That's not the way Christ intends it. He doesn't say you know, you guys are home run hitters. Now go out there and knock their blocks off. He says, you're salt and you're light, right? So what we offer when we talk about bringing life to the world around us, when we talk about bringing truth to the world around us, we do it through offering compassion and evangelism, witness to Jesus Christ. Compassion is part of the hallmark of the church is part of the hallmark of the heart and the lifestyle that has been formed by the compassion of Jesus Christ. Compassion is learning to show the mercy of God to those around us so that they can see God. To meet oftentimes these immediate physical needs so that we can do that and so that they can see God. Jesus said it this morning, Peter quoted Jesus this morning, let them see your good works so that they may glorify your Father who is in heaven. We see even in the Proverbs, wisdom literature. Proverbs 3 verse 27 says this, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power, do it. What you have, hold it with an open hand because there'll be these times when you're gonna give it away. You're gonna show compassion when you have the ability to show compassion. So we follow the example of Jesus Christ and the compassion that he showed. When you read the Gospels, paying attention to where Jesus went and what he did when he went there, it says often that he taught about the kingdom of God and he healed many of them who had diseases and sickness and were possessed by demons. So he teaches and he heals, bringing the message of the kingdom of God and bringing the power of the kingdom of God. And so we learn how to follow in his footsteps bringing compassion to the world around us. And here's a fascinating twist to that story of compassion that we don't always think about, but we started there in the book of Jeremiah. So what's one way God says of showing compassion to the Babylonians around you? I want you to work really well. 
I want you to do your job well. I want you to do it in such a way that honors me. This is, in fact, an important idea in the Old Testament about the way the people of God work. A fascinating passage of Scripture comes to us in Leviticus chapter 19. In the middle of that book that I know all of us begin the year with, right? In our reading through the year, um, if you've gotten to Leviticus by now, you're done <laughs> with your resolution to read the Bible through the year. I mean, wait until you get to Numbers, right? But Leviticus 19, fascinating passage. And he's speaking to people who run businesses. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap the field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. So even when you pick it up, if some of it falls out of your hands, you leave it there. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. That's his imprimatur. This, you do this because I am your God. And you're going to be like me. And you're going to show the kind of compassion I want you to show. So you leave the edges of your field. You leave the things that fall out of your hands so that your neighbor whose crop failed can come over and can glean and can make his own bread and food. You do it so that the sojourner who is passing through your land has something to eat. They can come and they can make their own bread and pick up their own grapes, right? Now, you may realize that the book of Ruth hinges on those two verses that we just read. The Boaz does this, and this is how the book of Ruth works. And guys, the Christian church has historically worked for the betterment of society. And that's a story that is way too long to tell this morning. But from the existence, just the sheer existence of hospitals to universities and from the Red Cross to the Geneva Convention, Christians did all of that. We work for the betterment of the world around us. So the church learns how to show compassion inside of its world but it needs to tell people the good news of Jesus Christ. The faithful church cannot separate compassion from witness. It cannot separate compassion from evangelism. And here's one of the ways in which the world places pressure upon the church. We want you to be a compassion ministry. Just don't ever talk about Jesus Christ. We want you to dig wells and give food away, but just don't ever talk about Jesus Christ. The faithful church can't do that. The faithful church holds these things together. Guys, it is an act of love. It is an act of love to tell people about Jesus Christ and their need to put trust in Him. It's an act of love. Witnessing to Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ, is not intolerance. It isn't a power play. It isn't colonial oppression. It isn't white privilege. It isn't Caucasian hegemony. It's love. It's love. The good news of Jesus Christ is God's message to his rebellious and broken children that there is a way back home. There's a way back into the family of God, even if you've run away. The world needs the church to faithfully bear witness to the good news of Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul says in the book of Romans, chapter 10, and we'll finish with this. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. 
For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Those divisions don't belong here. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray.